with a lot of things on my mind and the hymns that we sang and the things that we have brought to remembrance have really softened my heart and reminded me of why we're here. I mean, as I sat and struggled to think of a way to articulate to you all how thrilled I was to be here, as we sang the last song of the song service, I was reminded of the words of the psalmist David in Psalm 84, where he says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Selah. That word amiable, we don't use it very frequently anymore, but it quite literally in the Hebrew means to be boiled by love. It means to be warmed by love. I pray this morning as we go throughout the remainder of the service, we'd be warmed by our love for each other and also by our love for our Savior. Unfortunately, that's not what I'd like to talk to you all about this morning. Uh, I would like to draw your attention for the remainder of our time to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is not an overly complex subject, but I'm still incredibly excited about it. Paul delivered this to the Corinthian church because he felt as if they truly needed to understand this. Now, the Corinthian church was in quite a mess. As you go throughout First and Second Corinthians, you'll read about some of the issues that they had. First of all, they were taking fellow church members to court and suing them. And so Paul, he addresses the Corinthian church, and he says, Brethren, work out your issues amongst each other before you decide to take your fellow member to court and sue them for their money. Furthermore, there was immorality in the church that even the heathens of Corinth were astounded by. And Paul, he addresses that and he says, hey, remove this from your midst. This has no place in the house of God. Furthermore, the Corinthian church was perverting the communion service and the remembrance service of the Lord. They were taking the communion wine and it essentially was becoming a drunken feast. And that's just to get us started. There were many, many other issues that they suffered from. But one perspective that Paul needed to provide them with was a perspective towards human wisdom. Because Corinth was just an epicenter of human knowledge at this point in history. It was infected with many things, many kinds of corruption. But one of the miraculous things about Corinth is it really was a bastion of just knowledge and wisdom, specifically of the Greeks. Now, the Greeks, they perfected modern architecture. They really even began modern scientific method, all of science that we have now. They were incredibly intelligent, advanced people. And the church of Corinth was immersed in that environment. And Paul needed to teach them a few things about how to approach that massive quantity of human wisdom that they were exposed to on a daily basis. And so he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. So Paul has to remind the Corinthian church, I come amongst you teaching the things of Christ. The ministers that I've sent out amongst you, they come teaching the things of Christ. But the wisdom and tradition of the Jews, the wisdom of the Greeks, will not teach you to understand the mystery of Christ. He even entitles Christ as a stumbling block to these Jews that supposedly understood Him so well. Now, the, Greek, the Jews sought after a sign. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus even tells them that. He says, you are a wicked and adulterous generation and you seek after a sign. Now, he goes on to tell them that the only sign they will receive is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, the Corinthian church had decided that the resurrection was a facade, the resurrection of Christ, and also that the resurrection of the body was as well. So, Paul has to remind the Corinthian church, the Jews, they seek after a sign. They find Christ to be a stumbling block. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They seek after their knowledge. They seek after their technological advancements, these things that would truly change the world. But he said, this is not the wisdom that I want you to dwell upon, Corinthian church. For we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Could there be anything more foolish in the plan of God as it was revealed to the Israelites, as it was revealed to these people, to have a common carpenter come and walk upon the face of the earth and then be crucified of his own will at the end of his life? No, the wisdom of God, the master plan of salvation was concealed within the death of Jesus Christ. And the Jews looked at his death. The Greeks looked at his death. And to them, it was but a stumbling block in foolishness. And Paul delivers to the Corinthian church these words. Remember that it was foolishness to the Jews. Remember that it was a stumbling block to the Greeks. Remember that this is not something that you will understand with the wisdom of your time. But unto them which are called, in verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and wisdom of God. Paul says, it's foolishness unto the world, but it ought to bring news of deliverance to those who have been saved by the power of God. What Paul's saying here is those that haven't been taught understanding by the Holy Ghost in the new birth, those who haven't been saved by His power, this is but foolishness. They don't have the capacity to understand it. But unto you which have been delivered from the powers of darkness by God's grace, this is not the foolishness of the world. This is not the stumbling block of the Jews or the foolishness of the Greeks. This is the power of God. But he's going to have to tell us a few more things to help us realize that the world, the Greeks, the Jews, as he calls them in this passage, often doesn't understand the power contained within the death of Christ. He says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, 
how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Because regardless of how the Corinthian church had accepted the message of Paul, they're going to reach a point at which this message would have been challenged. Often it's going to be challenged by men and women and educated figures far superior to themselves in terms of their intellect and their education and the amount of knowledge that they possess. But Paul has to remind the Corinthian church, it doesn't matter if you stand in the face of a superior power. It doesn't matter if you stand in the face of a superior intellect. It doesn't matter if you stand in the face of someone that has the power to take your life. These principles, they still remain true. And the Corinthian church, from what we can observe from this passage, they were despising these simple truths that Paul had delivered to them. Because they were in this environment that delivered up things to them that seemed far more influential, far more important. In the midst of all of this progress, in the midst of all of this technology, in the midst of all of this knowledge, Paul was delivering to them the simple message of Christ crucified. And he says it doesn't matter if it's foolish. It doesn't matter if it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't matter if no one around you understands. We're still preaching Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. For God, again, hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. David phrases it differently. He says, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. David, even in his time of the Old Testament, he understood that oftentimes God uses the weak and fragile people of this world, broken by the knowledge of their sin, to represent His grace. And the world looks at those weak and fragile children of God that walk about bearing their light in the midst of a great darkness and doesn't understand the power that they have. Because God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of this world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. When Jesus Christ came and walked upon this earth, how did He display His glory in the time that He was alive? Did He go before the kings of the world and convert them to the Gospel? Did He go before the kings of the world and strike them to their knees in fear of His wrath? No, He went to those that were sick and afflicted and crawling about on their bellies, afflicted with chronic illnesses, and He healed them. That's the way that He chose the base things of this world to display His glory. And He looked to the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. How was the world created? Well, the world was created from nothing. 
The world was created out of nothing. And yet it is all that we see here today. You may look at the creation of the world. You may look at the creation of Adam, how the Lord shaped him from the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. Perhaps you may think of how Elijah took a small meal and used it to preserve an entire family through famine. Perhaps you want to look at how Elijah on top of the mountain saw a small cloud the size of a man's hand, and yet it brought rain enough to satisfy the land of Israel after a three-year drought. Perhaps you want to think about all of the other times that the Lord took something oh so very small and changed it and made it into something very great. You know, and that's the message of the Gospel. That there are these small things, these unworthy people that the Lord takes and He makes into something worthy of an object of His love. And why does he do this? That in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The Lord did not want to project a message to his people that would cause them to glory in themselves. If the message of salvation by sovereign grace, there is a reason that is not very popular, particularly in America. Because it defies everything that we want to believe about ourselves. That is a very, very hard truth. Especially for me. I would truly like to believe that I have the potential within myself to do anything that I could ever conceive of. But I go to the Scripture and I'm told that I'm a worm of the dust. That I'm not worthy to tie the sandals of Christ Himself when He walked upon this earth. That I'm not worthy to come before Him and display my accomplishments and glory in myself. Yes, I'm told that over and over again in Scripture. And it's a very, very hard truth. Because God did not want a message that we would glory in. Paul, in one way or another, he says this in essentially every letter that he delivers throughout the New Testament. He says, don't glory in yourself, glory in the Lord. In one place specifically, he says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. But, in verse 30, of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This is the ultimate perspective that we are to have towards the foolishness of God as is entitled in here, the stumbling block of the Jews and the foolishness of the Greeks. It doesn't matter what it is to anyone else. Here's what it is to us. God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God is both the directive power for each and every day of our lives. Wisdom. He is righteousness, the way that we ought to live. He is sanctification, the strength and courage to carry out each and every day in righteousness, strengthening in the Holy Spirit. And He is also, most importantly and most finally, redemption. That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And as we move into chapter 2, here's the more practical element of Paul's message. Now, Paul, he was a trained rhetorician from what we understand. You know, he seemed to have had somewhat of a blunt and abrasive personality, particularly maybe some speech issues that he was very self-conscious of, but he was an intellectual. Scholars say that maybe he could speak fluently at least seven languages. 
But yet he clarifies how he came delivering the message of the gospel. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now here's the issue that we're confronted with when we observe the gospel and the way that it's revealed to us here in this day and time. It's not revealed in the way that the knowledge of the world is. And I assure you, the knowledge of the world is revealed to us in a way that is very, very appealing to our flesh. The majesty and the power and just the miraculous ways that were conveyed all of this information and all of this worldly wisdom seems to overshadow the way in which the gospel is delivered to the Lord's people. Because when Paul came to the people of Corinth, the message of the gospel is shrouded in the way in which it was delivered to their worldly minds. And as they walked about and they saw the miraculous works of the Greeks, they saw all of their writings, they saw all of their conversation, they saw all of their debates, they saw all of their manuscripts scattered about the town. You know, they may have been to see some of these miraculous architectural constructions that the Greeks erected during their time. And then they looked at Paul. And he was but a weak man that came to them in fear and trembling, deliver, delivering the simple message of God's grace. But yet... They didn't understand the significance of the message which he delivered. And Paul says, there is a reason that I came to you in fear and trembling. There's a reason that the gospel often acts in contradiction to the way that we think about the world as a whole and the way that we like to think about ourselves. The Lord designed it in that way intentionally. That our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew many, many other things, did he not? He was a scholar. He had a wealth of knowledge that he developed under the teaching of Gamaliel at the feet of some of the premium scholars of Israel front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he said, there is only one thing that I brought to you. There is only one thing that I came teaching. There is only one thing that I wanted you to understand, and it was Jesus Christ. There's so many other things that Paul could have brought. He could have brought knowledge. He could have brought manuscripts. He could have brought books. He could have brought the acclaim of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But no, he said, I came broken in fear and trembling, simply teaching to you Jesus Christ. And he has to tell the Corinthian church, he says, remember who you are. He says, remember what I've come to you teaching. This illogical and this simple wisdom of Scripture. This is the message of God's grace. Don't forget its significance. Paul tells the Roman church as well in Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. 
By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. The law of faith teaches us that there is no place for our boasting in the message of the gospel. Jesus again delivers this same message to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 once again where He says, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed it unto babes. You know, when Nicodemus comes before the Pharisees and the Sadducees in John chapter 7, one of the main arguments that he makes you know, to leave Jesus unharmed in the land of Israel is that none of the Pharisees or the Sadducees declared an open belief in Christ. And that was very hard for, for Nicodemus, I'm sure, because he looked around and he looked around at the followers of Christ and he looked amongst them for the religious leaders of the day. He looked among them for the New York Times best-selling authors amongst Jesus' following, but he saw just broken sinners, those of the dust. He saw the harlots. He saw the publicans. He saw the fishermen. He saw those that came crawling to Jesus in hope of healing, and he didn't see any of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their midst. Because the great and the mighty of his time didn't go seeking after the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus came teaching a wisdom and a message that the world did not understand. We're confronted uh, with times in which we observe Jesus, we observe His following, we observe His teachings. You know, we're, we're often confronted with the same difficulty. You know, the message of Christ as it's delivered to the world is not shrouded in this worldly majesty. It's very simple. It's very down to earth. I'll speak, it's often delivered by people who could be more well-spoken, better educated, older, wiser, but yet it still remains the message of Christ when it's delivered in spirit and in truth. Amen. Many times, those who are most well-known of the world, those who are the best educated, those who are the wisest, those who are the most famous, the most widely acclaimed, they conceal from themselves the message of Christ. So my last thought would be, never let the, the method by which the grace of Christ is delivered, never let the simplicity of the message of Christ be downplayed by someone who may be mighty in the world. There are many who are mighty in the world who may believe and accept and fully embrace the message of God's grace. I rejoice in that. But I assure you, as the world grows darker, as we joyously move further toward the final return of Jesus Christ, there will be less mighty and less powerful and less great that rejoice in the message of God. Now, 
That's not something that ought to terrify us. When you go throughout the Gospels, maybe you go to Thessalonians, maybe Revelation, and you read about the traumatic things that herald the coming of Christ. Yes, those times may be dark. The times that we're in may be dark. But I'm here to tell you today that the darker these times grow, the closer we move towards the second coming of our Lord and Savior. And I don't care how dark the times are. I don't care... How severe the suffering is, the second coming of Christ will remove all of that turmoil and pain and whatever preceded His return will be worth it in the end. So as few are mighty, as few are powerful, embrace the message of Christ as we're tempted to reject the message of Christ because of simplicity. Pray that we remember that God uses the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. The stumbling block of the Jews, the foolishness of the Greeks, the mockery of the world, the slain Messiah. That conceals one of the greatest mysteries, the greatest mystery that the world has ever seen. The master plan of God's redemption. I pray these things have been productive this morning.